to the Ego Sumvia podcast with me, Father Andrew Eber. And as always, I invite you to begin by joining with me in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, take away from me whatever keeps me from you. My Lord and my God, give to me whatever brings me to you. My Lord and my God, free me from myself, that I may give you all I am, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This weekend is Divine Mercy Sunday, that special devotion to Jesus which originated with Sister Faustina Kowalska, and with the image of Jesus that she saw, and with the words she was told to write with that image, Jesus, I trust in you. It's an opportunity then for us to reflect upon the Divine Mercy devotion and on its origin, and also perhaps to think a little about what those words mean to us now, in our current situation, Jesus, I trust in you. So, just a little background to St. Faustina. Uh, she was born in Poland in the early years of the last century, born into a peasant family, the third out of ten children. She wanted to become a religious sister from quite an early age, but when, at the age of 16, she asked her parents, they would not give her their permission. So she went to work as a domestic servant, as a housekeeper, until she had made enough money to pay for her own habit and enter the convent at the age of 20. She worked in the kitchen, in the convent, and in the garden. She didn't have any special authority in the convent. She never founded her own house, for example, or anything like that. And she was never physically strong either. She suffered from her late 20s from an illness which seems to have been tuberculosis, and after much suffering, died at the convent in Krakow, aged just 33. And that is the bare outline of her life, which was a very humble one. Tall outward appearances, insignificant, unexceptional, we might say. It's interesting that in our times, I mean, what we might call modernity, let's say the last 150 years or so, in these times God seems to grant visions to the humble and the lowly. So we can think of Bernadette of Lourdes, or the three shepherd children of Fatima. These visionaries had no special status or celebrity that would make others listen to them. They had no prominence in society or in the church. Now they might, in that, remind us of St Paul's words in his letter to the Corinthians, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. St. Paul says to the Christians at Corinth, not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. It's not bad to be reminded of those words, particularly at a time when we might be doubting our own strength, or be more than usually convinced of our own weakness. 
For myself, I'm reminded uh, of that lovely saying of St. Bernadette of Lourdes, who explained the undistinguished nature of her life after the vision she had received by saying, The Virgin used me as a broom to remove the dust. When the work is done, the broom is put behind the door again. It is those who are content just to be the broom, even to be the broom forgotten behind the door. They seem to be the ones who are granted these special favours from God. Jesus Christ appeared to St. Faustina on the night of Sunday the 22nd of February 1931, and she experienced visions of him regularly for what were to be the last seven years of her life. Jesus asked her, Paint an image, according to the pattern you see with the signature, Jesus, I trust in you. And he said, I desire that this image be venerated first in your chapel and then throughout the world. It was this image that was painted first by the artist and professor Eugene Kazimirovsky in 1934, and then later after Faustina's death by other artists, all the images slightly different. None of the created images that Faustina saw in her lifetime apparently matched up even remotely to what she had seen with her own eyes. Apparently, uh, when she first saw the original painting that was fashioned according to her direction, she wept in disappointment. And in prayer, she complained to Jesus, Who will paint you as beautiful as you are? But Jesus answered her, Not in the beauty of the colour, nor of the brush, lies the greatness of this image, but in my grace. The image was and is to be a vessel of his grace, not a masterpiece of artistic composition. But today, on this Divine Mercy Sunday, it's surely worth reflecting for a moment once again on the words St. Faustina heard in that original vision. Paint an image according to the pattern you see with the signature, Jesus, I trust in you. Those words we see inscribed at the bottom of the Divine Mercy image, Jesus, I trust in you, are an integral part of what Jesus desired us to encounter. They are not then uh, an added extra, but are integral to the message and to the devotion of Divine Mercy. So it's worth reflecting what that statement might mean to us now. Jesus, I trust in you. What form that trust might take and in what context it might apply. One of those contexts, uh, for example, is a daily one. And if I can start with a personal reflection, it concerns the trust I need to have in what God wants me to do with my life day by day. My life as a priest because if I reflect on my own ministry, well, practically every day I meet other priests who are holier, kinder, more competent than I am, and then I have to trust the Lord again. Yes, Lord, this is where you want me to be, 
with my inadequacies and my shortcomings. Very often I find myself shrinking, in a way, from the demands that seem to be made upon me, for which I seem to be so unfit. One of the saints, I might say, who inspires me in this is St. Teresa of Avila, a doctor of the Church, one of the great spiritual writers in the life of the Church, and yet someone who took up her pen with enormous reluctance. Why do they want me to write things? she asks in the way of perfection. I am a stupid creature, and I don't know what I am saying. There are more than enough books written on prayer already. For the love of God, let me get on with my spinning and go to choir and do my religious duties like the other sisters. I'm not comparing myself, of course, to St. Teresa, but I have great sympathy for her desire to get back to prayer and spinning, to get back, if you like, to being the broom kept behind the door. So often we have to trust the Lord that where he puts us on this day is where he has work for us and where he wants us to be. And then I have three other examples of trust for you from three other wonderful spiritual writers. Again, trust exercised in different contexts. So the first is a kind of cosmological or metaphysical trust, uh, that is, trust that God looks after the entire world. And the writer is our very own Julian of Norwich, who wrote these words in her cell about a mile from where I'm now speaking in the late spring of 1373 or thereabouts, so roughly the same time of year. And this is one of the visions that Julian received, probably in early May of 1373. God showed me a little thing, a quantity of a hazelnut, lying in the palm of my hand, as it seemed, and it was as round as any ball. I looked thereupon with the eye of my understanding, and I thought, what may this be? And it was answered generally thus, it is all that is made. I wondered how it could last for I thought it might suddenly have fallen to nothing for littleness. And I was answered in my understanding, it lasts and ever shall, because God loves it. If you visit the cell of Julian of Norwich uh, in her church here in Norwich, there is always a little basket of hazelnuts kept by the entrance door to the cell so that you can sit there and place one in the palm of your hand and reflect on God's love for the world, which is so little and so frail, but so loved by him. And then my second example, trust that is exercised in the particular context of personal hardship or distress. And the writer here, this is John Henry Newman, uh, writing in Spring Again in March of 1848. God has created me to do him some definite service. He has committed some work to me which he has not committed to another. I have my mission. 
I may never know it in this life, but I shall be told it in the next. Somehow I am necessary for his purposes, as necessary in my place as an archangel in his. I have a part in this great work. He has not created me for nothing. I shall do good, I shall do his work, I shall be an angel of peace, a preacher of truth in my own place while not intending it, if I do but keep his commandments and serve him in my calling. Therefore I will trust him. Whatever, wherever I am, I can never be thrown away. If I am in sickness, my sickness may serve him. In perplexity, my perplexity may serve him. If I am in sorrow, my sorrow may serve him. My sickness or perplexity or sorrow may be necessary quarters of some great end which is quite beyond us. He does nothing in vain. He may prolong my life, he may shorten it, he knows what he is about. He may take away my friends, he may throw me among strangers. He may make me feel desolate, make my spirit sink, hide the future from me, but still he knows what he is about. The particular context of this trust is the suffering St. John Henry Newman endured as a consequence of his conversion to Catholicism some two and a half years earlier. Newman had been one of the young stars, if you like, of the Anglican Church, an Oxford Don, an influential writer and preacher. Coming over to Rome, he had to give up this stellar career. He had to give up the life he loved at Oxford. He had to give up his job and accommodation. He lost many lifelong friends. Members of his own family never spoke to him again. And yet here he is, in the crucible of that suffering, proclaiming his trust in God who knows what he is about. And surely that is a good example for us to follow right now, if we are able to do so. And then finally, a contemporary spiritual writer who I am sure will one day in the future be made a doctor of the church like St. Teresa of Avila, and that is the Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI. And the context for this expression of trust is God's abiding presence alongside us, God's loving accompaniment of us. These are beautiful words, almost the last public words of Benedict as Pope, spoken at his last general audience, again words of springtime, the very first days of spring at the end of February 2013. So looking back over his pontificate, Benedict discerns the presence of God who accompanies us. I have felt, he says, like St. Peter with the apostles in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. The Lord has given us many days of sunshine and gentle breeze, days in which the catch has been abundant. Then there have been times when the seas were rough and the wind against us, as in the whole history of the church it has ever been, and the Lord seemed to sleep. 
Nevertheless, I always knew that the Lord is in the bark, that the bark of the church is not mine, not ours, but his, and he shall not let her sink. It is he who steers her. To be sure, he does so also through men of his choosing, for he desired that it be so. This was and is a certainty that nothing can tarnish. It is for this reason that today my heart is filled with gratitude to God, for never did he leave me or the church without his consolation, his light, his love. And then the Pope Emeritus concludes this last general audience. I would like to invite everyone to renew firm trust in the Lord. I would like that we all entrust ourselves as children to the arms of God and rest assured that those arms support us to walk every day, even in times of struggle. I would like everyone to feel loved by the God who gave his Son for us and showed his boundless love. I want everyone to feel the joy of being Christian. I have to say I love the fact that Pope Benedict, who was uh, often treated so poorly by the media and characterized as, well, as best a remote scholar and a worst a doctrinaire enforcer, I love the fact that Pope Benedict's last public words were words of joy. And I hope you enjoy them today as well. Perhaps now, too, in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, Perhaps this is a time to rediscover our trust in God, trust in the love of God as Julian of Norwich experienced it, trust in the presence of God as Benedict XVI experienced it, and trust as St. John Henry Newman experienced it in the knowledge of God, who knows what he is about, even if we do not. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now the Gospel for this second Sunday of Easter and my homily. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. In the evening of that same day, the first day of the week, the doors were closed in the room where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them. He said to them, Peace be with you, and showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were filled with joy when they saw the Lord, and he said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so am I sending you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. For those whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. For those whose sins you retain, they are retained. Thomas, called the twin, who was one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. When the disciples said, We have seen the Lord, he answered, Unless I see the holes that the nails made in his hands, and can put my finger into the holes they made, and unless I can put my hand into his side, I refuse to believe. 
Eight days later the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. The doors were closed but Jesus came in and stood among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he spoke to Thomas. Put your finger here. Look here are my hands. Give me your hand. Put it into my side. Doubt no longer but believe. Thomas replied, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, You believe because you can see me. Happy are those who have not seen and yet believe. There were many other signs that Jesus worked and the disciples saw, but they are not recorded in this book. These are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing this you may have life through his name. The Gospel of the Lord If there's one thing our Gospel reminds us of today, in our situation, it's that Jesus doesn't do locked doors. It is evening on that first Easter Sunday and the doors were closed in the room where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They have locked themselves away. They are in hiding, fearful, anxious, desperate, trying to find security not in faith but in lock and key. They have, if you like, imprisoned themselves as a way of keeping themselves alive. That might resonate today. But Jesus doesn't do locked doors. Jesus doesn't respect the prison that the disciples have constructed for themselves. Of course there are different types of imprisonment in life, and I'm sure we can all recognise this, there are physical and material prisons, and I've spent plenty of time in those as a prison chaplain. And then there are emotional and spiritual prisons. And I have to admit I've spent time in those as well, prisons that I constructed for myself. The first great prison, if you like, that is broken by Christ, the first great and astonishing prison break that he accomplishes, is of course the prison of death, which is shattered on the day of the resurrection. But for sure, as I say, it is not the only prison. There are prisons of doubt and disbelief, as in the one that the disciple Thomas has enclosed around himself. Thomas, who refuses to accept any perspective that isn't his, who won't let himself see the world through God's eyes, won't let himself see the world from God's wide and light perspective, but instead insists on seeing the world from his own shadowy and constrained and negative perspective. There are prisons of human despair and prisons of self-doubt. You may have encountered these yourself or even become an inmate inside one. Our prison may be an attachment to another pattern of behaviour, even to another way of life, another world. 
It is said, for example, of St. Ignatius of Loyola, and this may be a myth, but it is said of St. Ignatius of Loyola that when asked by a visitor to the first Jesuit house why there was no prison cell for recalcitrant brothers, as was common in those days, St. Ignatius pointed to the unlocked doorway leading out to the world and said, There is the prison. Many of us, I'm sure, have locked rooms that we don't want to allow Jesus enter. The room where, for example, I don't have to commit more to him than I already am. The room where I don't want to orient more of life around him than I already am. The room where I want to keep some things to myself. Or it could be the room that says, I am not good enough for him. The room that says I am not capable of giving him more. The room where I keep the people I have not been able to forgive, or the bad habits and customs I have not been able to throw over, and where I tell myself I cannot be a better Christian while this still lurks and festers in my life. So many of our prisons are self-fashioned. So many of our locked doors seem unbreakable when we are left to ourselves. And yet, if we go back to our Gospels for today, when Jesus walks into that locked room and invites us with the disciples to step outside, it is not as if he is asking us to do anything we are not capable of. Nor is it that he won't help us with the challenge, or that he won't accompany us if we accept it. And yes, Jesus comes into the locked room to challenge his disciples, not just a challenge, of course. He is also there to rejoice with them and to reassure them. But let's be honest, there is a challenge here to them and to us. For Jesus also enters, and this is important, this we shouldn't forget, Jesus also enters to empower his disciples with the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit, he says. As the Father sent me, so am I sending you. He empowers the disciples with the Holy Spirit, and he does so in order to send them out of the room to do his work and to proclaim his good news. They don't, that is, have to leave under their own steam. Well, not entirely at any rate. And that same empowerment of the disciples by the Holy Spirit at the word of Jesus, that same empowerment is offered today to you and I. Jesus has work for you and I. He has work for you and I and he has a life for you and I to live, which is perhaps different from the one we have chosen for ourselves and which for that reason might be challenging to follow but a life which will be fuller and more complete, more authentic, if you like, than the life we would have chosen for ourselves if we were left to ourselves inside the locked room. So think for a moment about the future for those first disciples in our gospel today whose locked door could not keep the Lord out. Those first disciples are about to embark on an almost unimaginable adventure, 
traveling across the Mediterranean basin, proclaiming the love of God in Jesus Christ. It might not be the life they would have chosen or even imagined, and for sure it will have its challenges and its privations. But one thing is abundantly clear. That world to which Jesus now invites them will be infinitely broader and richer and brighter and more varied, more real and more authentic even, than the little locked room to which they have confined themselves. So if I can leave one last question for you. If the resurrection is the single greatest transforming event in human history, then what in my life am I not allowing to be transformed? Can I now invite the Lord to help me discern just what I need to open up to his love and his grace? And can I invite him to help me step out of that room, step out of whatever prison I have forged for myself, and step into his life and his love, giving myself and my life as freely and completely to him as he has done to me. Amen. So as we come to the end of this podcast, thank you so much for being with me. As always, do please get in touch with any comments or questions you have, any suggestions for things we ought to cover. And I'll upload another episode next Sunday. I look forward to joining you there. Let's end then, as we always do, with the prayer of our Lord. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.